When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Industrial disasters are tragic, especially when they're preventable. Insufficient safety measures and carelessness created a perfect and deadly storm in 1984, which in my opinion, hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. People still suffer from the fallout of the Bhopal disaster to this day and may continue to do so for many years to come. Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past. My name is Blair or the Illuminati. And today I want to talk about the Bhopal gas tragedy or the Bhopal disaster. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's just get right into it. It all starts with the UCIL factory. Built in 1969, the Union Carbide India Limited Company had plans to approve and build a plant in Bhopal and had a 99-year lease on an industrial zone. The area around the plant was relatively unpopulated, though there are two lakes nearby and the main Bhopal railroad station was about two miles from the plant site. The 1961 census estimated the population to be just over 100,000 people at the time, but considerable in-migration from the surrounding countryside tripled the population around the time the plant was built. The Bhopal Saga, a book written about the disaster, states that the plant opened to manufacture pesticides. This plant was, quote, welcomed not only by the authorities, but also by the residents who saw opportunities to get jobs. To work for UCIL meant a high salary as well as high social status. UCIL developed social activities like sports and entertainment that involved the whole community, end quote. And I've got to say, I've never heard of a pesticide plant trying to actively do right by their community. So at least they seem to start off on the right foot. For the first few years, there's really not much information about UCIL at all. Then in 1972, India's government began pressing UCIL to have their formulation shift using US source chemicals to full production in India. It issued an operating license for the Bhopal plant requiring them to use domestically made alpha naphtal, a corrosive compound. In other words, within three years, the Bhopal plant was basically told, hey, even though you may have had no intention of making this chemical here, you're gonna have to make it now. The situation is more nuanced and I have more in-depth sources available, obviously in my own sourcing for a more complete picture, but I do have to simplify a few events for the sake of brevity. One source, UMass EDU, has a fantastic timeline of events written up and they explain what happened a year later. The Indian parliament adopts Foreign Exchange Regulation Act 1973. Among other strong controls on flow of money in and out of India, it establishes a scheme for government control over Indian firms' decisions on hiring foreigners as employees or contractors. Indian government approves UCC, Union Carbide Corporation, UCIL Design Transfer Agreement and Technical Services Agreement under which UCC will provide the basic process design of a plant capable of producing seven, a carbile pesticide used on cotton and other crops and training for Indian operators of plant. Then a year later after that in 1974, the Indian parliament adopted water prevention and control of pollution and air acts. These established the central government as the main standard setter while leaving enforcement to state governments. Both acts increase penalties for causing pollution, but do not specify any emissions or ambient standards. It's important to know who had power over what aspects of the plant for what's to come. 
starting in 1976, local trade unions started complaining about pollution within the plant. And in 1977, when Indian farmers were hit by drought, pesticide sales fell. By the early 1980s, sales equaled less than half the production capacity. By 1984, less than a fifth. As the Bhopal saga states, safety measures were failing and some measures simply didn't exist in the first place. For example, the managing director recommended that preliminary designs involved only token storage in small individual containers, but UCIL was overruled by the parent corporation that wanted a design like a plant in West Virginia. Yet, Boba wasn't provided with safety requirements and equipment and security systems for reasons that to this day are unclear. Instead, in 1975, the state government wanted to designate a sparsely populated site as an industrial area for hazardous facilities. But Union Carbide insisted on building the MIC production and storage unit upwind from the city. One of these safety hazards involved methyl isocyanate or MIC, an organic compound used in fertilizer production. It's an extremely potent respiratory irritant and toxic to humans. Storing MIC in large tanks as Bhopal did was irresponsible. In Texas, France, Germany, Japan, and Britain, MIC was stored in small vessels and in small quantities but Bhopal didn't follow the seemingly standardized methods. The book goes through every single difference in how this dangerous chemical is stored, but here are just a few. In Virginia, knockdown tanks take out MIC discharge to a flare tower. This flare tower was designed for the worst possible scenario, to burn off gas or vent it away before it could leave a facility. There, MIC was also kept at negative 10 degrees Celsius and a large water spray system was designed in 1982. The location was downwind and alarms and loudspeakers pointed outwards. In Bhopal, well, they didn't have any of that. The alarms were only directed at workers. The location was near a rapidly growing and densely populated area. There was no knockdown tank and their flare tower was limited. The MIC tank was also at zero Celsius and their alarm system not only didn't reach the residents, but their siren automatically stopped after 10 minutes. Any one of these things may not seem like a big deal, but All of these little things together adds up to create the perfect storm. And like in many cases with these tragic events, there were warning signs too, red flags that were unfortunately ignored. It didn't take long for things to start falling apart. In 1974, residents found that a well had been contaminated and cattle that drank from water dispensing from the factory died. Two years later, trade unions retracted because of plant pollution and letters were sent to plant managers and the Ministry of Labor. Neither party responded. Then in 1978, there was a fire in the factory that revealed raw materials stored in undesignated areas. Management was suspected of starting the fire deliberately to circumvent import restrictions, but no incident report was filed. And things only got worse from here. Two incidents involving workers took place in 1981. In the first, a worker was splashed with phosgene and in panic removed his mask. Phosgene, if you didn't know, is a poisonous gas that's converted into a liquid when it's shipped and stored, and it was responsible for the majority of deaths in World War I. When this worker was exposed to it and subsequently inhaled it, he passed away after 72 hours of exposure. Managers blamed the worker for removing his mask, but as the union pointed out, it was a malfunctioning valve that led to the incident. However, management did not seem to care or heed their warnings as on December 24th, one supervisor and two workers were exposed to a phosgene leak during a maintenance operation. One of those workers passed away and yet again, management blamed the employees for removing the mask. Now, regardless of if the valve was malfunctioning or not, there's sufficient evidence indicating that these workers were not trained for this job. It's really hard to place blame on the workers in this scenario and management and inspectors, they clearly were not doing their jobs. And that's where I think the blame really should fall. 
How can you expect the workers to just know how to follow safety protocols when they were never trained to? Things only continued to deteriorate in the days leading up to what became the Bhopal tragedy. In January, 1982, there was another phosgene leak. 24 workers were exposed and had to be admitted to the hospital. None of the workers had been ordered to wear protective masks. And after the incident, the workers demanded safer working conditions. In February, 1982, an MIC leak affected 18 workers. In August, 1982, a chemical engineer came into contact with liquid MIC resulting in burns in over 30% of his body. October, 1982, there was a leak of MIC, chloroform, and hydrochloric acid. An MIC supervisor was severely burned and two other workers were exposed to the gases. As Eckerman's book says, by the following year, leaks happened with frightening regularity. MIC, chlorine, monomethylamine, phosgene, and carbon tetrachloride, sometimes in combination, were involved. The trade union went on strike and distributed posters throughout the community, but UC staff continued to call the plant safe and dismiss them as disgruntled workers. One journalist, a neighbor of the worker that died in 1981, investigated the worker's claims, and according to my source, his final article, which appeared just five months before the disaster, was titled, Bhopal on the Brink of a Disaster. No one took any notice. He also sent letters where he summarized the findings of his investigations to the chief minister and the chief justice of the Supreme Court, whom he requested to close the factory. He got no answer. The book adds, one engineer was anxious that the pipelines might crack, allowing MIC to escape and hit passing trains and their passengers. He collected information about the meteorological conditions for Bhopal from the National Meteorological Observatory in Nagpur and sent it to UC and South Charleston. After computer simulation, he got the answer that such a cloud would pass over the train, which meant it would hit the Bastis. And the Bastis meaning a settlement or a shantytown occupied by poorer families in India. When the pressure in the nitrogen tank 610 dropped to one-fifth its normal level on October 21st, 1984, managers just switched to tank 611. And they did not bother to investigate. And when the nitrogen pressure in 611 fell to, they fixed a faulty valve and once more, did not investigate the source of the problem. Whenever nitrogen was pumped in, it leaked out, but the route remained unknown, uninvestigated, and as we know, unsafe. It was most certainly on the brink of disaster. I don't think I've ever seen so many warning signs go ignored before. And I obviously can't say why this is the case either. Maybe because it's the management in the factory that they assumed that even if something did happen, it would be minor. I want to say that no one could have anticipated a disaster like we're about to watch unfold and try to give these people the benefit of the doubt, but I just can't. People were dying and many more people were about to die and UCIL and UCC, their parent company, should have taken action much earlier. It was not safe and the deteriorating conditions should have been apparent to anyone who took even the slightest bit of a closer look. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before tragedy did strike and fixing these conditions was no longer an option. And before we unfold the events of the Bhopal tragedy itself, I wanna take a quick moment to place the sponsor here because afterwards things are going to get a bit grisly. What do you want to eat tonight? Maybe you want a home-cooked favorite, but don't feel like going to the store. Or maybe you want something exciting and new, but it would be a great day to stay in. Well, DoorDash connects you with everything you want whenever and however you need it. You can get what you want to eat right now and right to your door with DoorDash because along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other household essential items delivered with DoorDash. You can get drinks, snacks, and other goods in under an hour. 
If you even have that late night craving for ice cream, perhaps you just forgot that one key ingredient you needed for dinner, or maybe you just wanna stock up for the week. With DoorDash, you can get everything in one app. And ordering is super easy, and your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. So for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code PRISM. Don't forget that's code PRISM for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. On December 3rd, 1984, that perfect storm hit. And a content warning here, there are going to be a few difficult descriptions of injuries up ahead. On December 3rd, tank temperatures were not logged and the vent gas scrubber was not in use. The cooling system also wasn't in use. A slip bind wasn't used when pipes were washed. The concentration of chloroform in tank 610 was too high. The tanks were not pressurized. Iron was present because of corrosion. The tank's high temperature alarm wasn't functioning and the evacuation tank wasn't empty. The meter's monitoring tank, E610, showed abnormally low pressure and many valves, vent lines, and feed lines were in poor condition. In May of that year, on the advice of US engineers, a jumper line was installed to connect a relief valve header to a pressure valve header. This was a cheap solution to a serious maintenance problem. UCIL was inviting trouble, really, and the US was not helping either. It seemed like just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and it did. It was 12.40 a.m. when one worker, Sumon Day, watched the MIC begin to leak again. As he stood on a concrete slab above three large partially buried storage tanks holding the chemical, the slab suddenly began to shake beneath him. There was a tremendous sound, a messy boiling sound underneath the slab like a cauldron, the worker, Sumon Day, later recalled. The whole slab was vibrating. He said he started running away, heard a loud noise behind him, turned to look and saw 60 feet of concrete at least six inches thick crack. The heat was like a blast furnace, he said. I couldn't get within six feet of it. He then heard a loud hissing sound, he said, and saw gas shoot out of a tall stack connected to the tank to form a white cloud that drifted over the plant and toward nearby neighborhoods where thousands of residents slept. I panicked, he said, everybody panicked. Mr. Day, a tall, soft-spoken man who had worked for the plant for five years, was among about a dozen workers and supervisors interviewed who were at the plant in the hours before and after a leak of methyl isocyanate a chemical more toxic than cyanide that was used at the plant to make pesticide. 40 tons spewed from the factory, 40 tons. According to The Atlantic, one of the reasons why the Bhopal tragedy seems to go unnoticed or may not have gotten the attention it deserves is because the Chernobyl nuclear accident happened just over a year later. And that case is far more well-known and documented. Regardless, Bhopal is one of the worst industrial accidents in history. The immediate effects were horrifying. Workers began to flee for their lives at 1.30 a.m. and the gas leak didn't stop until 2.15 a.m. BBC's documentary, One Night in Bhopal, reported that the sleeping city barely heard the alarm. It was turned off by plant managers to keep citizens from panicking. And if you ask me, they should have wanted to panic. This was the perfect time to panic. All their safety precautions failed and turning off the alarms probably made more people believe that it was being handled and all was well when things were about to get really bad. Heavier than air, the gas was a low hanging toxic cloud. No one from the company called the police or told anyone there was an emergency so they could evacuate. Another massive failure on the plant's part. 
People were unsure if they should run or shelter in place. So some remained inside while others fled towards the nearby train station to try and get out of the city. Those who stayed behind were vomiting violently. Eyes were burning, experiencing a breakdown of their lungs. MIC kills people in horrific ways. Many people died drowning in their own fluids. Pregnant women miscarried and children ran through some of the densest patches because the air was so heavy. The former medical officer of Union Carbide nude to cover doors and windows with damp cloths and stay inside a homemade airtight bubble. Yet, even though these simple steps could save lives, UCIL never told anyone what to do in the event of a leak. The information was never made public. Instead, they lied and told doctors that the gas was a mere irritant and to use milk, eggs, water, and eye drops as treatments. Doctors didn't know what else to do because UCIL wasn't providing information about the gas itself or any kind of antidote. They weren't sure what the surge of patients were suffering from, so how could they possibly help? And this is where things go from negligent to grossly irresponsible to criminal. It's one thing for a gas leak to happen. It's another to give false information to doctors and say that this gas killing thousands is a mere irritant. This is where I go from being pissed to absolutely furious. Autopsies were done to find out what was killing people and all the autopsies sold the same horrible story of fluid collapsed lungs. Those who tried to escape found no trains entering or leaving the station. Eckerman's book states that the two railway employees who were on the shift that night stuck to their posts and tried to send messages to adjoining stations to stop all incoming trains. When Gurakpur Express approached, they walked onto the rails and signaled with lamps, but were not detected until it was too late. When the train arrived at the station, the station master immediately went out to send it away. The two employees died and the station master became an invalid. When the morning light came, the extent of the disaster was obvious. In the areas around the factory, every goat, cat, dog, cow, and buffalo had died. Outside and inside the houses, dead human bodies were lying. Only the birds and rats did not die. In a few days, all the leaves off the trees fell off and the grass became yellow. Hospitals were cataloging the dead for those who remained behind or were unable to get away from the toxic gas. Officially, 3,000 people died. Many people were unidentified as whole families perished together, but other estimates put it between eight to 10,000. No one seems to know for sure. Up to half a million people suffered from exposure. One heart-wrenching story in the documentary is of a young woman whose husband, a maintenance worker, came home from the UCIL plant to find her in their home, rocking their youngest child. She had gone blind from the gas and was unable to see that their baby had died. Victims were cremated until the fuel ran out and then mass graves were dug. No one from Bhopal wanted to return, terrified the gas still lingered. According to one source, Bhopal became a city of death in the words of India today. The journal Nature wrote, The anguish vividly carried around the world by the television cameras seemed not to have matured in the anger, even hysteria. There would have been had the accident occurred on the edge of a European city or in Connecticut, the site of Union Carbide's US headquarters. Prior to the Bhopal disaster, there had been only one scientific report on MIC toxicity. So then who was truly at fault for these deaths, this tragedy? Where did it all go wrong? Personally, I'd say this level of negligence goes straight to the top, to Union Carbide HQ. The UCC chairman and CEO, Warren Anderson, was arrested but released on bail by the Madhya Paresh police in Bhopal on December 7th. His bail was only $2,100. And I know that may be worth more in India, but he was the CEO of Union Carbide, so there's no way that this would have even made a dent in his bank account. 
Anderson, eight other executives and two company affiliates were all given homicide charges and required to appear in Indian court. Union Carbide, instead of taking responsibility, said that their company isn't under Indian jurisdiction, while Anderson seemed to take the fall. He was charged with manslaughter and declared a fugitive from justice on February 1st, 1992 for failing to appear at court hearings. A lawsuit against him was filed in 1999, seeking civil remedies for crimes against humanity, but it was dismissed 13 years later, and in 2014, Anderson passed away. This disaster has been treated like a traffic accident. It's a judicial disaster. Accidents do happen, but there were so many warning signs. UCC showed how little they cared about safety protocol time and time again. The death toll reached thousands with hundreds of thousands affected. UCC paid $470 million in compensation to the Indian government, and yet the people are still suffering. It's not as if money and a couple years in prison brings their family members back. When you consider the half a million affected by this event, even if they all got a fair share of the fine, it wouldn't be very much. In addition to the pathetic handling of these lawsuits and prison time, the government's handling of the death toll has also been quite insulting. The Atlantic states, no one knows exactly how many people died that night. The official government estimates began around 3,000 and have since been revised to 5,295. Officials from India's Central Pollution Control Board did not respond to numerous requests for interviews. But other sources, including Amnesty International, say that at least 7,000 people died just within the first three days, and about 25,000 people overall have succumbed to MIC exposure. Another 500,000 have lingering health problems. Even those who have been appointed to handle this tragedy, such as the Minister of Gas Tragedy Relief Sarang, didn't want to talk about the tragedy itself. Instead, he says that the minister is concerned with his image and he has, quote, big political aspirations. Although UCIL, the Indian subsidiary, has a lot to answer for, the UCC, headquartered in the US, is just as guilty. And I know that it might be easy to blame UCIL, but I don't want anyone to forget that it was UCC that demanded this branch produce these chemicals in the first place without ensuring proper safety measures. The UCC apparently went so far as to fabricate a scenario involving sabotage by previously known chic extremist groups and disgruntled employees, even though their theories have been disproven by numerous independent sources. And I personally doubt this was some kind of sabotage given the clear history of events here and the information that's been available. The Dow Chemical Company, which now owns Union Carbide, still maintains a website dedicated to the tragedy and claims the incident was a result of sabotage, stating that sufficient safety systems were in place. As much as I don't like entertaining this disproven conspiracy theory, I will explain where it came from. As Eckerman wrote in her book, phosgene has always been present in MIC. When water entered tank 610, it would have reacted and produced hydrochloric acid. This in turn would create heat and promote a chain reaction, causing an increase in temperature, vaporization, increased pressure, and a gas leak. The amount of water in the tank has been disputed, but some believe it could have been put there intentionally. The book states, the water, which was not draining properly through the bleeder valves, may have built up in the pipe, rising high enough to pour back down through another series of lines into the MIC storage tank. Once water had accumulated to a height of 20 feet, it could drain by gravity flow back into the system. Alternatively, the water may have just been routed through another standby jumper line that had only recently been connected to the system. Indian scientists suggest that additional water might have been introduced as a backflow from the defectively designed vent gas scrubber. UC teams say that this just isn't possible. The water would have had to travel dozens of meters of piping and climb 3.5 meters to the gas opening. 
Plus, multiple valves were closed at the time. So the chance that every single one of them was leaking simultaneously also makes this theory highly improbable. Another source explains that for some time, just two drainage valves were flowing. The water could have made that climb before the third drainage valve was unblocked. And I don't know if water was intentionally put in the storage tank or not, but what I do know is that UCC claims to know for a fact that they were sabotaged and they claim to know who did it, yet they never pursued the matter legally. Nor can they answer why the supposed saboteur would put themselves and everyone they know in danger. The fact is, sabotage or not, UCC didn't do enough to protect these people. And as a result, many are still suffering to this day. According to a BBC documentary created in 2004, Bhopal caused an abnormal amount of GI, skin, and lung cancers. There are birth and genetic defects and fertility impairments. Miscarriages are seven times the national average. This is yet another reason why, in cases like these, I feel like no amount of money can ever be enough because this doesn't just go away. Bhopal's victims include more than those who just lived there in the 80s. This truly lasts for generations and it's irreversible. Those who did survive and continue to live in the area experience coordination problems, memory loss, impaired immune systems, and many other problems. Some citizens died a few years after exposure and others suffered for many years before eventually passing away. When the BBC documentary was made, an average of one person per day was dying as a result of the gas. One Atlantic journalist said, Every Bhopali older than 33 has a story about the leak. So I wasn't surprised when Sarang, a survivor of the tragedy, told me his. He and his parents escaped to safer grounds in one car, but a mob hijacked the car, his sisters were in it, leaving them exposed to the gas. They survived. In India, and in those days especially, only wealthy families could afford two cars. Because he is also a gas victim, Sarang said, he understands the plight of the people in the affected communities and is committed to bettering their lives. Sarang has made smart cards for everyone to allow hospitals to track their care. He's promised to renew the widow's pensions to build roads and parks in the neighborhoods, anything that will help people in the long and short term. The soil, the water, none of it is safe in that area. Yet the people in Bhopal say they have nowhere else to go. Since 1990, multiple organizations have documented unsafe levels of pesticides and chlorinated solvents in the soil and water. Unfortunately, none of the reports validate the others because each one has sampled different locations and different times. Though there are some hopeful stories published about the kindness and helpfulness within the community, this heartbreak is not uncommon. Some say the situation is getting worse as second and third generation children are born with disabilities caused by the gas. Bhopal campaign groups say that the pond nearby where Union Carbide used to dump their chemicals sits festering and untouched with six of the persistent organic pollutants banned by the UN for their highly poisonous impacts on the environment and human health. It's only spreading though plans are being made to carry out toxicity assessments, at least as of December, 2019. Women exposed to the gas, even babies tend to have high rates of infertility, stillbirths, early menopause, and things of that nature. The Chingari Children's Center established for those born with disabilities as a result of the disaster has registered over 1000 children. Many have cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, intellectual disabilities, and more. This is a terrible legacy of Bhopal. All of these children were born to parents or even grandparents who were in contact with the gas that night. Worse still, activists allege that there's been a deliberate suppression by the Indian government of any research which proves the long-term systemic or genetic damage caused by the Bhopal tragedy and it's likely because they don't want to take responsibility. Dow Chemicals obviously doesn't want to deal with the fallout either. A civil court case, which began in 2010 is ongoing in the Supreme Court. I don't think any sum of money can erase the pain and suffering or make up for lives lost. 
The fact that so many victims were only given 25,000 rupees or the equivalent of about 340 US dollars is infuriating. The Supreme Court could have reopened this case already, yet they continue to wait. I know cases like these take time, but 10 years of time? That has to be maddening for these people waiting for some kind of closure or even just one genuine apology. And as bad as the Indian government's behavior has been, the US has been no better. In 2003, when an extradition request was sent to the US for Union Carbide CEO Warren Anderson to be extradited to India to face trial, emails released through Freedom of Information reveal that Secretary of State Colin Powell and figures at the State Department emphasized the importance of this issue to the US business community. And various officials at Union Carbide met with officials at US State Departments. The extradition request was later declined. Years later in 2010, Obama did not meet with NGOs about Bhopal out of fear of stoking the issue. Instead, his visit was to stress his quote, support for Dow's business in India, end quote. Between 2014 to 2019, the US had six chances to pass on the summons for Dow Chemical to appear in court, with each one being ignored. The US has had the opportunity to bring light to this issue, one I knew very little about before even starting my research. We don't have to speculate about how the Indian government feels. The Joint Secretary at the Ministry of Chemicals, which is responsible for Bhopal stated, quote, I am not concerned with this issue, end quote. The governments don't give a shit and they've said as much too. And that's the reality of the situation. And that's why I wanted to talk about it today. Those thousands of lives can never be brought back. And the Indian and US governments would rather pretend that this never happened in the first place. Not to mention COVID-19 has only made things worse. In Bhopal, victims of the gas explosion are more likely to die from coronavirus. Their death count is 6.5 times more than those who were never exposed. And my heart does break for the community of Bhopal. And I hope this awareness can do something, even if it's only to acknowledge what actually happened there. But with all of that being said, that is where I'm ending today's episode of Prism of the Past. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you for hearing about the story of Bhopal, especially if you've never heard it before. I appreciate you spending the time to be here today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.